and welcome to Outrage and Optimism. My name's Tom Rivet Karnak. I'm Christiana Figueres. And I'm Paul Dickinson. This week, we introduce our new book, The Future We Choose, and tell you something about it. And we speak to eco-philosopher Joanna Macy. Thanks for being here. Right, so um, nice to be back. It's been a week. Uh, lots of interesting things going on. It's been a big week for Christiana and I. We've put the finishing touches to our book, which we've sent off to the publishers. Um, and so we thought that this week, Paul, if you're up for it, we thought we'd tell you about the book. Please, I'd love to learn more about the book. It sounds like a fascinating piece. In fact, you haven't read it, have you? I read large parts of it. I really did, yeah, 100%. <laughs> Do we believe him? <laughs> Not really, but, you know, that's par for the core. What I did read was so fantastically good, I didn't feel any need to read any more of it. <laughs> well, I am sorry to say you're going to be hearing a lot about the book on this podcast good, in the next few good. weeks. Good, good. Okay, great. So, um, so we've called the book The Future We Choose. And the first thing we should say is that even though you can't um, actually have it delivered right now, it is available for pre-order. So you can find more by going to wechoosethefuture.com where there is links to everywhere that it's currently available. But Christiana, why don't you set out for us in broad terms what the book's about? Well, I'm not going to spill all the beans um, because we will do that per a per across a couple of these episodes. But I just wanted today to pick up on one of the surprising components of the book. And in order to do that, I would like to quote Gutspeth who is an environmental lawyer from the United States. He was the head of UNDP, the UN Development Program, under both Butrus Butrus Ghali and Kofi Annan. He's the founder of World Resources Institute, WRI. He was the dean of the Yale School of Forestry and Environmental Studies. You get the picture, a true science-based environmentalist. Mm. Now, Here's the quote that I find so surprising from Gut Speth. He says, I used to think the top environmental problems were biodiversity loss, ecosystem collapse, and climate change. I thought that with 30 years of good science, we could address those problems, but I was wrong. The top environmental problems are selfishness, greed, and apathy. Hmm. And to deal with those, we need a spiritual and cultural transformation. And we scientists don't know how to do that. Quote, Gusbeth. So what I find fascinating about that quote is that someone who has truly spent his life on both legal, regulatory, scientific issues of, uh, of environmental degradation, including climate, comes to the conclusion now that we actually need a cultural and spiritual transformation. And the reason why I find that fascinating is because the center part, our book is in parts one, two, and three. And part two, we will later on tell you what part one and three are. But part two is exactly about what Gus Beth is calling for. It is about a cultural, spiritual, conscious revolution that um, that is necessary to change three basic mind sh mindset shifts that we need to have in order to be able to address the physical part of climate change. So that, I think, is a little bit surprising to have that kind of a message in a book about climate change. Yeah. And probably worth also just digging into that. It's an amazing quote from Gus Beth. I hadn't heard that before, actually. Um, is when we wrote that part, that middle part of the book, what we really drew on was how the Paris Agreement happened, right? 
So when you joined the Secretariat in 2009, 2010, um, the UNFCCC, it was kind of an impossibility that the world could reach a global agreement on climate change. And then five, six years later, you know, we were fortunate to be, be there when that happened. And that transformation was, of course, technical, economic, etc. But it was also about how people were able to show up differently in that process to do something that had previously been thought to be impossible. So that's kind of what we drew on with that transformation and also draw lessons in terms of what can happen now. Right. And I, th I think what we were very purposeful about um, in the lead up to Paris and what is again necessary now is to uh, be much, not just mindful, I think mindfulness is where we start, yeah. but to truly understand uh, what is our approach, what is our attitude, both toward the planet and our capacity to regenerate it, but also to our human capacity to change exactly what he's talking about, away from greed, away from scarcity, and into abundance and regeneration and optimism and yeah. constructive thinking and acting. And it is entirely possible. We have it in us. And what we need to do is to uh, realize that those seeds are within us and water those seeds. Yeah. So, and just so briefly, so, so that listeners understand kind of the whole context of the book, as Christiana said, it's, it's th in three parts. The first part kind of sets out what's at stake in the coming years and um, what the world might look like in 2050 if either we get on top of this issue in the coming 10 years or we don't. And obviously that is a dark scenario and it is a more bright scenario where we've actually faced this and we now have a more positive future. The central section of the book, as Christiana has been describing, is sort of what are some of the deeper human qualities that will make it possible for us to actually make this transition? What can we draw on as part of the human spirit? And what have we seen that is possible in the transformation that led to the Paris Agreement? And then the final section, um, which is you know half the book, which we're really pleased that we were able to put in half the book being the practical solutions, because often it's a much smaller part of these books is the 10 things that need to happen to take us from one trajectory, the world we're currently creating, to the world that we can create. And that is a range must of- Must create. Must create, right. And that is a range of different things that we can all participate in, that many, many different parts of society need to come together around with evidence around what's happening, with practical ideas for individuals, um, that we think is kind of hopeful and inspirational as well as practical and realistic. So we are really excited about this book. So that's fantastic. Paul wants to get in now with his optimistic or maybe his outrage. No, before that, actually, I'm, I'm going to make a little plug for the book because I think um, the future we choose is the heart of that. And what I love about that quote, you know, I actually now, after 20 years doing kind of climate change full time, I realize we do not have an environmental problem. We have a greed, a selfishness and an apathy problem. And, you know, little human, like humans we are, you know, we're not designed that we have to dig up, you know, hundreds of billions of tons of CO2 or carbon fuels or whatever. We have choice about how we live. And that's the point. Very nice. So I was just going to say, where can you, we actually get this book? Because we just sent it off to the publishers, but they have actually already put it online. They have indeed. So if you go to the dedicated website that they have created for us. Which is wechoosethefuture.com. Dot com. Wechoosethefuture.com. There you can pre-order. And please don't be surprised. There is a UK version and a USA version. 
with very different, very different covers, which I haven't but quite understood. But the same content. Why. Exactly the same content, but different covers. I don't quite understand why we have different covers, but no that's idea. what we do. So you can choose your cover depending you on which shop you privately, I can probably get you a USA version <laughs> in the UK, but that's another thing. Okay, so let's get on with the broadcast. All right. Paul. How are you feeling this week? Yeah, no, good. I'm, 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 I'm happy, uh, excited by the world and everything. But um, I actually came across uh, some, some kind of uh, popular, I don't know what the word is, a kind of popular uh, speaker. And he was extolling the virtues of Bjorn Lomberg. He was saying, climate change, no one knows what to do about climate change, so we should do nothing. And he said right. Bjorn Lomberg had worked out with Nobel Prize winning economists that we, whoever we are, should spend not our money on climate change, but on helping the poor in, in the developing world with lots of problems they have. Which he's been saying for years. Which he's been yeah, saying for yeah. years. And I have, uh, for our listeners, you've probably all worked it out yourselves, uh, a simple way of removing the edifice of total, am I allowed to say uh, around Bjorn Lomberg. Um, that's too bad as well. It's not so. a question of whether we spend money helping the poor or whether we spend money uh, uh, dealing with climate change. It's a question of whether we spend money on jewellery, computer games, training shoes, you know, ridiculous holidays and food and giant houses and yachts. So to, to face off two of the most urgent expenditures against each other is an act of supreme stupidity and brutality and must not be allowed to carry on in the intellectual discourse of this world. I am furious at this absolute imbecile trying to say that we must uh, keep our grossly selfish economy exactly as it is and, and commit barbarism in one way or the other. That's that's the wrong attitude. Uh, Paul, could I invite you to tell us what you really <laughs> think about that? Okay, I'm just kidding. <laughs> He's on the fence. <laughs> what about you guys? What do you think? Have you? Do you know Bjorn Lomberg? In, yes, he actually came. He had the brazen audacity to come to one of the climate change oh, negotiations. Okay. Um, and it was just really appalling. It's just completely appalling. Then I had the audacity to come and uh, and then start to give his ridiculous, ridiculous, ridiculous. arguments. Yeah, which, have, um, which haven't changed for years, right? I mean, I've given that speech for a long no, time. No, it's, yeah. really, it's really quite interesting because climate science has actually advanced very quickly. Right. And every year we have more and more granularity and more and more certainty around climate science. Whereas he is kind of stuck in whenever he started. I can't remember when that was, 20, 30 years ago. Um, and, it, you know, he's he's just... Stuck there. He is incapable of delivering anything new. Christiana there showing what a bigger heart she's got than certainly me and being somewhat sympathetic to this poor lost soul. <laughs> Tom. <laughs> well, my optimistic point was about the book. Okay. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm feeling very optimistic that the book is done. It's been quite a long journey, but... There's been blood, toil, tears and sweat to get that book out. So just yeah, so more, you know this. More tears than anything, really. Yeah, I haven't yeah. seen the blood yet. If that's yeah, so. coming... <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, so this week we have uh, a wonderful uh, person to introduce you to, or you probably know her already. Um, it is Thanksgiving next week in the United States. Um, obviously a only a United States holiday, but one with, with uh, sentiments behind it that are very much understood around the world, giving thanks for things we're grateful for, etc. So we thought that we would bring you a slightly different kind of interview. Joanna Macy um, is somebody that... Certainly Christiana and I, maybe Paul as well, have kind of known about for many years. Yep. She is uh, an extremely thoughtful philosopher, 
um, has been an environmentalist uh, and interested in these issues for many years. She has a PhD in religious studies, uh, which she received in the late 70s. And since then has um, written many books, many of them about what the theoretical framework is for personal and social change and how do we approach um, as human beings the fundamental transformations that our world is going through. Uh, she's been a real advocate for you know facing the reality that we are in, but also for the cultivation of what she calls active hope, which is, to our minds, very close to what we have always called stubborn optimism, which is this embracing of the idea that a kind of gritty determination to face the future with courage and with a commitment to improving the future um, can actually be a strategy rather than just a sort of blind sense of um, a blind posture towards the future. So that's who she is. Um, I would very much encourage you to go and have a look at some of her works. And Christiana and I are now going to go and talk to her. And P.S., she is one of the inspirations that we drew from in order to write the aforementioned part two of the book. Right, absolutely. Uh, she really uh, has been one of the greats in developing that type of uh, awareness within ourselves. So quite wonderful that she um, is, came on the podcast with us. And she is 90 years old, which makes her only the second oldest person who's been on the podcast after Sir David Attenborough. 16 to 90, whatever David is. Excellent, good range. Enjoy the interview. Joanna, thank you so much for joining us. It's a real privilege to speak to you today. Um, Christiana and I have worked together for many years and we share sort of many perspectives, but one of the principal ones is an appreciation for a Buddhist worldview. I actually lived as a Buddhist monk for a number of years and Christiana has followed various Buddhist paths and seen the benefit of that. And your work has really influenced and um, affected us over many years, including in the the lead the in the years leading up to the Paris Agreement. So to speak to you now is 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 uh, is great for us. We we're, we're really affected by it and appreciate it. Sounds like good karma for me. <laughs> <laughs> um, well, I just wanted to start with that. Thank you. Um, and you've done this work for so many years, and 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 really, we want to what we want to dig into today is uh, to our minds, you are one of the very deepest thinkers on our emotional response to this very complex and painful time that we're living in, in which we're witnessing something of an unraveling of the web of life and understanding our role in that, how we bear witness to that, how we translate that reality into a sense of action so that we can do what is in front of us. And, you know, you have you have um, various practices, including the work that reconnects, where you talk about, you know, engaging with that and facing grief and other things. You also talk about active hope. Um, but maybe we can just start with your own position and your own relation to the natural world now and to what we're living through. How, how would you describe your internal state as you think about where we are, what's to come, um, and, and what your feelings are towards the years and the decades that will unfold in, in the immediate future? Well, I'd say that uh, one of the immediate feelings to mention is awe, that it is awesome. It is an amazing turn of fate to be a human being on this planet 
now, at this moment. It is an evolutionary point that everything looks like in terrible danger. Everything is coming apart. We're getting closer to vast numbers of uh, beings going over the edge into disappearance. Uh, and I hope I don't sound dippy in saying, but I feel it's our incredible good fortune uh, to be here right now, mm. uh, where everything we have ever learned about trust in life, love for life, gratitude for life uh, can be put, and, and our wits and the pain we've seen around us, all of that can inform uh, our state of mind and then our acting on it. Mm. I have uh, been working with the sense and the deep, the group work that uh, I started uh, 42 years ago uh, was born of a sense of we were on the way to destroying our world. That led to a over a year of a dark night of the soul. I had just completed my graduate studies. I'd gone to, I'd entered them in my 40s all after a busy life already. Uh, and then I thought, how do we go on? And it was, uh, it turned out that what worked, what suddenly worked for me was helping people speak the truth of their experience. Hmm. Society uh, on this side of the Atlantic that is so committed to manifest destiny and brimming with hope where the uh, successful person smiles a lot to look at what we were doing to the world. And for me, the a big issue back then, I was an activist in, in nuclear energy and, and saw the toxicity and the longevity of, of this mat materials, radioactive contamination, and nobody wanted to talk about the dark side. But then I found that if I could, with my wits and, and love, uh, help people and my compassion. So that's where that helped uh, my outrage at the psychic numbing that was self-inflicted uh, on our culture. I could turn that uh, to recognizing that at the deepest level they were suffering too. Hmm. I wasn't the only Cassandra, you know. And in the actual framework of a meditation uh, class, we began to find talking about our pain for the world. And then when I saw what happened to people when they could express that, the grief, the fear, the dread, the rage. And uh, then what I saw happening was a shift in identity that they opened. We decided as that became expressed, what became also evident was a much wider sense of who we are. And we're not separate, isolated uh, 
individuals deformed by five centuries of hyper-individualism in our civilization, but that we, uh, there was a much vaster sense of who we are and, and, and a sense of deep belonging to the earth herself. Hmm. And we, that was happening in this century, less than a half century, where actually science was coming through with so much um, systems thinking, which was part of my gr- doctoral work, systems thinking with Buddha Dharma, mm-hmm. that basic teaching of anatta, no self, uh, was actually, <laughs> you're kind of everywhere. <laughs> and there was a, a sense of vastness, vastness of uh, belonging, what you're belonging to. And then what you're belonging to is not just some object, but it's active too. So a sense of reciprocity, you open to the collective intelligence, you open to the mind of the earth and and the universe, and it then responds. It responds to your very heart-mind. It gives you uh, a sense of daring and strength and being held and being already home. Joanne, as you've been speaking, um, I've conjured up a visual that I'm going to share with you, and I would love your reaction to that. Um, The visual that has come forward for me is uh, we are walking along the ridge of a very tall mountain. And if we turn our gaze to the left, we see a very steep precipice of darkness, of anger, of despair, of destruction. And if we turn our gaze to the right, we see the connection that we have to nature, to this planet, to each other. We see the love that is possible. We see the compassion that is powerful, and we see the solidarity that can be transformative. But we're walking on that ridge. And what I find disquieting is that as a whole, we humans have still to decide which way we're going to turn our energies. And can we take the energy that is created undeniably out of fear and despair? Can we actually pull that up over the ridge and onto the other side and transform it into the forces of good that can be so transformational? Mm-hmm. But we're still up on that edge. And this podcast is called Outrage and Optimism because I think we see both realities operating at this moment. We see the outrage that is being felt certainly by adults, but increasingly by children on the streets. 
And we also know that if we stay on that side, we box ourselves into a very deep, dark hole and we will not be able to be instrumental in the transformation that needs to occur. So we know that we need to transform that into the optimism on the other side. Mm -hmm. Now, what I would love your guidance on, Joanna, because you have been a, a guiding light for so many millions of people, is how do we accelerate that decision? Because I do think that it is a decision. It has to be an intentional choice that we make to get off the ridge, to not deny that we have a dark side on one side because it is there, mm -hmm. but to get off the ridge or at least turn our face toward the side of the light and the love and the solidarity mm -hmm. and begin a very constructive process, which is now very urgent, mm -hmm. of regenerating what we have destroyed. How do we accelerate that choice? Yes, well, it has to do, doesn't it, with uh, uh, fear so that we can, uh, right now, uh, in our countries and particularly in, in my country, the uh, widespread fear, dread, and anxiety is being used for political gain, for extremism on either side, and actually polarizing our country tragically. Uh, this isn't no news in that, but for most of us uh, who are hanging in there with uh, deep intentions for the healing of our world, what helps, uh, so many answers to that, Christiana, but one is to not be afraid of the fear, to help people not be afraid of the depths of uh, grief, and even not to be afraid of the feelings of powerlessness mm. and, and the feelings of, of sorrow. So we actually um, have uh, practices, and I was involved in one that an African-American colleague of mine staged last week of our truth mandala where we all moved in together to express, to actually not turn our gaze away, not turn away from our feelings of despair, but to express them. Mm -hmm. And then uh, not to be af afraid of them and to realize that these are uh, natural re responses to the suffering Uh, that we glimpse, and we want to scream and pound, and uh, you know, and but then to recognize that uh, we feel these acutely because they come from a larger willingness to suffer with our world, mm -hmm. and this capacity to suffer with uh, is actually the literal meaning of compassion. Mm -hmm. And it, it, in every faith tradition, it is held up as a, a saving grace that you can be able to suffer with other beings. Then as you open to that instead of running from it, uh, which we are very much encouraged to do by uh, 
the centuries we've lived with this political economy and colonial mind, uh, we, we have been told to identify ourselves uh, as uh, a separate, you know, master of our fate, captain of our souls or captain of our ship. And, and we've been taught how to compete and how to dismiss others and how to climb to the top. Those have been ingrained in us, and, and even in their response of feeling, honoring our separateness. So it's, it's, this is an incredible moment for us to uh, it's overcome, if we possibly can, and I believe we can. I see it. I see it in the work because the, that, the work I started out with, we called despair. Despair and empowerment. Meet your despair. Let it speak. And then see where it's coming from. It's coming from a not craziness, but deep caring. Yeah. Now that's a tall order to, uh, in, in our country and, and in our culture, because the uh, political economy saves itself by pathologizing our grief and fear and depression. Mm. And we're given, and that's been a boon to the pharmaceutical industry. We're told that there's something wrong with us and that we need all kinds of mental therapies, psychic mm. therapies, and that we can uh, need to take uh, medicine for it. This is permeated. And so a lot of the people who are making the in positions of power where their choice choices can be more effective are uh, innerly terrified of expressing their grief. Joanna, I'm, I'm, this is really interesting. And I'm, I'm really fascinated by there, there appears to be amongst people who are concerned about the future of the world, this kind of dichotomy that is um, characterized by you're either approaching, you know, the future with a sense of grief and, and, and some would say like a reality of it, or you have a more of a kind of optimistic, hopeful lens for the future. And the reason we called our podcast Outrage and Optimism, and it could have been called Grief and Optimism as well, is because we believe that both of those, interestingly, taken to their extremes are forms of denialism. But properly applied, they both have a very interesting and complementary role. And we've never really bought into the narrative that they are somehow either ends of a pole. You know, I mean, to, to, to deny the reality of a painful unfolding, such as we're facing right now, would be... Um, you know, a fool's errand, really, to try and sugarcoat that. But at the same time, we need to face the reality of our situation with a sufficient brightness of mind that enables us to do what we can and still work and not get trapped in that. So I wonder if you can just speak about how you can hold both of those at the same time and whether you agree with what I just said. Of course. Of course we have to. But what happens with our... Uh, taking in a matter-of-fact way, of course there's hurt. Of course there's pain and suffering on our part. But that is just the other side of the same coin as our love for our world. Hmm. 
our pain for our world and our love for our world are two uh, sides of the same coin. And so that we don't need to turn from one or blame one or try to, it's just, it's a natural thing. We belong to this world in a very deep sense. We are our planet. Every atom, every molecule of our bodies, of what we hold in our minds and what we hold in our hearts and feelings and our relationships come from this earth. We are our earth. Hmm. So the deep ecological view has been very healing for me and very explosive in sense of giving me a sense of I think that we awaken what I see around me, our people awakening to a wider identity, a new sense of belonging, and incredible determination. And they don't get scared mm-hmm. because they know they're here for good. Yeah. Whatever happens, we're home. We belong also to our universe. Is, is that what you meant before, Joanna, when you opened our conversation and you said you were so excited to be alive right now because this is a very unique evolutionary moment? What, what, what did you mean by that? Exactly, exactly, I do. And as a matter of fact, sometimes I think that uh, the bodhisattvas and other Buddha fields are lining up to t- take a chance for an incarnation on planet Earth right now where everything that is uh, real about the celebration and honoring and respect for the miracle of life is on the table now, Mm. where we can stand for it. Of course, some of us will end up in jail in two minutes, if you know, or we can, with people doing what they feel they need to do to protect when we have a legal system and a corporate system that is commodifying the world. And we're ready to run risks, but with a a bold heart. And uh, this sense of of being part of the planet and and the planetary intelligence growing as we, with our own, uh, that is held by indigenous peoples around the world, that they've managed to uh, avoid this uh, doctrine of our a sense of who we are. And so what is greatly encouraging me right now is how these First Nations people in my continent here and and in Latin America, as well as around the world, are uh, speaking out with great integrity, I am finding, Mm. uh, to model to not only speak, but to model for us uh, what it can look like to honor life, to honor a life-sustaining culture, and, uh, and they're being heard, and the young people are hearing them, and even very old people like me are hearing them. And I know that if we manage to avoid the catastrophe, uh, loss of everything, loss of all complex life forms here, uh, it will be because we ha- they have stayed so faithful 
to a vision of our deep belonging. And it's moving fast, even where I live, uh, with the Ohlone people and the Miwok people, and they're being listened to. So even, say, with uh, Standing Rock and the horrors visit upon that and the poisoning of the Great Missouri River and the Mississippi, and even with the pipelines gaining more and more access, always going, being put through native land or poor communities. They are helping us hold with great patience a deep recognition and deep respect for our earth. And so our hope is an, not what we wish could happen or expect to happen, but what we intend, what we want to happen, what we're ready to get behind. That understanding comes from a cherishing of our capacity to choose. Mm. We can choose what the world we want to struggle for and sing for and pray for and love. We can choose that. And that choice-making in the Buddha Dharma is the same name as mind, citta. And bodhicitta is our choosing for life-sustaining life on our planet. And that has been a great help to me. Tom and I have to confess to you that we've just finished writing a book, the title of which is The Future We Choose. Oh. And the message in the book is we're at that unique moment in the evolution of human history in which we truly can and must choose the future that we're going to hand over to generations to come. Uh, and we're very clear in the book that this has to be an intentional choice because uh, if we're not choosing intentionally, we're just letting the default happen. And that also has its own energies. And so we, we are very much encouraging an intentional, intentional and intelligent choice of uh, joining forces to build a much better world, which we think is entirely within our capacities to co-create. Absolutely, absolutely. And we become uh, what we choose. Exactly. <laughs> well, there oh, you go. I'm, <laughs> I'm thrilled that you've lent your uh, brilliance and determination uh, to bringing forth that book. Well, we will we will send you a copy as soon as it's out. It'll be published on uh, February twenty fifth, and uh, we will we will send or you before then. or even before. That's true. We can even send you a a pre sale copy, um, and we will send it to you with much love and admiration. Oh, and I will receive it with wonder and cries of exultation. <laughs> <laughs> Joanna, thank you so so much. Yeah, blessings on you both. Thank you and to you. Thank you, Joanna. Yes, thank you. So that was a different kind of interview this week compared to having had a central banker last week and a deep, a deep thinker on environmental issues this week. What do you guys leave that conversation with? Paul? I mean, I was struck by her 
particular uh, comment about indigenous populations who I know the IPCC actually have recently been saying have a great deal to teach us about mm. how to live long term. But she's, you know, she used an amazing phrase saying that they were not deformed by five centuries of hyper individualism mm. and that they have a deep belonging to the earth, which I think is absolutely key. And, um, you know, I, you know, she spoke a little bit about the kind of the colonial mind and how we think we're masters of our fate. But, but her comment that I know that if we manage to avoid catastrophe, it will be because uh, we have stayed faithful to the vision of our deep belonging. I think that's a, mm. a beautiful and a very important message. Christiana? What does she mean by the deep belonging? I think what she means is the uninterrupted relationship that we have with nature. The fact that most of us walk around thinking that humanity is over on one side and the planet and nature are over on some other side and that we are separable and separated. And she's very, very clear in reminding us that that separation exists only in our mind and in our attitude. And that when we change that understanding and that attitude, then we begin to see everything as inseparable and hence our huge dependence on and responsibility for the integrity of the planet if we as humans intend to stay around here. I was also quite taken about um, how at some point she sort of hesitated on the word optimism in her, um, in her conversation with us. And I understand that because the term that she uses is act of hope. And what she means by that is to have the positive um, view that we can continue to make a positive difference, that we can be a force for good. And when she says act of hope, what she means is apply it, go and do something about it. Don't just think of, think about it or meditate on it, just actually do something about it and have an impact. And it's very similar to um, the, um, the concept that Tom and I develop in the book about stubborn optimism, about having that positive framework and being fully aware of the barriers and the challenges that we're going to, uh, we're going to face along the way, but still having that gritty determination to actually go and have a positive impact. But it's interesting how, um, and in, in, in the literature research that we did for the book, we did notice that there was differences of opinions about the definition of hope and optimism um, um, ultimately, we all mean the same thing. It's interesting, isn't it? There's almost a gap in the English language for what we're talking about there. Is there a, is there a word that nails what we're talking about in many one of the other languages you speak, Christiana? That's uh, Spanish and German for those listeners who don't know. Yeah, no, no. Because both hope and optimism can either be sort of a soft aspirational feeling about the future or they can be kind of hard determined, determined mm. strategies for making change. They're very ambiguous words, actually. I'm almost thinking, no, and certainly none of the languages that I speak, but there probably is a word in Sanskrit for this. Mm. There probably is a word in some of those more nuanced languages. Yeah. Um, there probably is a word. If anyone listening knows of any language that contains a word, Let us know. we would love to know. The word that means what? Well, whether there is any languages that, that separate out kind of what we would think of as the two meanings of optimism. One is just sort of a sunny disposition and kind of thinking everything will be all right. And the other would be a deliberate, bright attitude that is used as a strategy to improve the future. 
So we want that, the yeah, second. It, yeah, Christiana, exactly. in German, can't you like put loads of words together into a giant yes, word? Yes, you can. <laughs> Do you want to have a go? Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> we, we, could, we, we could have a sausage word, you know. <laughs> <laughs> and the word esperanza doesn't mean that. No, esperanza is definitely hope. Hope, right, okay. Mm, yeah. yeah. Cool. All right. Um, well, we will be very grateful if anyone knows anything about that. Please do something. a prize, a, a free book for somebody who actually finds the word. There, there you, you go. go. Okay, absolutely. Um, yeah, I mean, I, I, I've, I've long admired Joanna Macy. It was a real, real pleasure and a privilege to talk to her. I think that she is just one of the deepest thinkers on this issue. And I think, you know, I suppose in some ways it's not necessarily a great insight, but just pointing out that the kind of the grief that we're seeing around us at the moment is the other side of the coin of people's love for the natural world. And that that spilling out has a tremendous amount of hope and positivity in it because it indicates, if you can, if you deliberately see it, it indicates something deeper, which is the first word she said in the interview when I asked her about her own relationship with the natural world. She said it was based on awe, which is amazing that she's so in touch with that. So I thought that was very, very hopeful and encouraging. Awesome, you could say. Awesome. <laughs> cool I think that's it for this week thanks thanks for listening bye so there you go another episode of Outrage and Optimism Tom and Christiana have a book coming out titled The Future We Choose pre-orders are available now at wechoosethefuture.com go there and buy the book All right. Without further ado, Outrage and Optimism is a production of Global Optimism and is produced by Clay Carnell. And I know that you know that I work hard on this, but you know who works harder? Callum Grieve, Fran Newman, Pete Cluttenbrock, Chloe Revel, Marina Mancilla, Zoe Trelak-Antich, Nigel Topping, and Michael Northrup. And that recording you heard of Joanna Macy was recorded by our colleague Mackenzie Wilson. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at Global Optimism. And please leave us a rating on Apple Podcasts. It's super easy. You just go to our podcast page on Apple Podcasts. You tap the stars and that's it. It's done. You did it. All right, Tom, Christiana, and Paul, we'll see you here next week. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.